Tina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WG. Welcome into the final episode of June here on Legal Face Off. The Legal Eagles are here. We are still zoomed out. Rich Linkoff, Tina Martini. My name is Sam Paniatos. Thanks to Ben Anderson for usual. For producing this show. I don't know if he's beyond or under or behind the glass at this point. I don't know because I can't see him. But per usual, plenty of topics to get to. The LGBTQ Supreme Court ruling plus CPD against CPS. And of course, Inside Out is back. Legal grab bag at the end of the show. How are we holding up, Rich and Tina? How are we? Great. Everything's good. And summer's here, which always makes things better. Doing well. Doing well. Put, you know, put the suit on today. I'm not going to say putting a suit on has been easier in these times, but, you know, that's why you only see it from this part up. I picture that's one of those suits where you just pull it off and it's <laughs> exactly. underneath. So let's get to our first topic here. We have two guests to talk about it and break it down. John Knight, a return guest. He's a director of LGBTQ and HIV Project at ACLU Illinois. That's Alphabet Soup. Mr. Knight, welcome back. Thank you. Nice to be here. And also joining us, another return guest, Professor Carolyn Shapiro, who, of course, is from the Chicago-Kent College of Law, Associate Professor of Law, and she is the co-director of the Supreme Court of the United States at Chicago-Kent. The Institute on the Supreme Court of the United States. It would be nice if I were the co-director. very long bio, so I apologize. That's okay. Professor Shapiro. (laughs) Thank you. Also very important to note that Professor Shapira is a former clerk to the Supreme Court and is, uh, is a return guest, as we know, as is John. So we're so lucky to have you both. Um, John, you're one of the attorneys who was on this incredibly important case. Um, on Monday, as Sam mentioned, the Supreme Court in a 6-3 decision uh, ruled that gay and transgender workers um, are protected under the Civil Rights Act from workplace discrimination. So a couple of questions. I know it's there's a lot to talk about, but why were these the right cases? Why were, were the uh, plaintiffs that you were representing the right plaintiffs? Because we all know that these cases really depend on the right kind of case being taken up. And also, why did it take so long for what seems like a really basic human right to be recognized finally by the Supreme Court? Especially, by the way, when the same court just not too long ago recognized um, gay marriage. I mean, the, these are great clients. I don't think we ultimately choose which cases get in the Supreme Court, as uh, Carolyn can tell you very clearly. Um, but uh, this, you know, we we had a great win in the appellate court, and the court decided to take this case up. Um, I mean, the obviously the the losers in that case, the employer sought and asked the court to take it, and and we were frankly a bit surprised that they did. But uh, we're glad, we're thrilled at the result. Professor, take up the second part of the, the question, if you, if you would. Why do you think this court at this time, um, and again, in a 6-3 decision that was authored by Neil Gorsuch, who was President Trump's first appointee, who, you know, most conservatives thought was going to be a bedrock conservative vote for years and years, and also Justice Roberts, who voted against gay marriage. Why do you think the, you know, this court at this time came up with this decision and authored in the majority the way it was. Well, the answer is the statute. This, this is a case, this isn't a case about constitutional rights. It's this case about the meaning of the words of a statute. And the statute prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex. Uh, the, 
Justice Gorsuch, in his opinion, explained that that doesn't mean you have to say you discriminate against every woman for it to be illegal, right? The court has said before, for example, that discriminating against female parents of young children uh, violates Title VII. Um, And so too here. Uh, one, the, the employers said, well, we're not really discriminating on the basis of sex. We're discriminating on the basis of something else. Uh, but as Justice Gorsuch said, you can't talk about sexual orientation and you can't talk about gender identity without talking about sex. Uh, or, and therefore, uh, it's squarely within the words of the statute. Can I just say, I mean, and, and I think uh, Carolyn would agree this is this is a conservative decision. I mean, this is what conservative courts do. They apply the plain language of the statute without making assumptions about what Congress meant back in 1964. Um, this clearly, I mean, it seems like an easy case in many ways. Um, uh, is it because of sex? There's just absolutely no question that it is. Um, and Justice Gorsuch addressed every possible question from the employers and the dissenters about why that can't be right and just dispense with them because none of them really make any sense. Um, unless you're really just trying to avoid the language of the statute, there's no way to get to an, a different result. I know Tina wants to jump in. I just have a really quick follow-up to that because I thought it was really interesting. And the decision is very long, obviously. I think it's like 18 pages. But, um, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, who's Trump's other appointee, uh, was in the dissent, but he, it almost seems like as, as, as differentiated from the Alito language, it almost seems like Kavanaugh was apologizing for his dissent in this case. And many are looking at that as a sign of in this day and age, given where we are as a society, it's really hard to rule against, um, you know, this community. It's really hard to sign on to a decision if you're Gorsuch or Kavanaugh, who are relatively, you know, they're the youngest members of the court. What do you make of that, uh, Professor? Do you see, what did you read from Kavanaugh's dissent, if anything? Well, I would agree with that. I mean, his dissent was not, um, lacked a lot of the bitterness and uh, I would say even hysteria of Justice Alito's dissent, which was this sort of very, very long parade of horribles. Um, Kavanaugh seemed to think that um, that LGBTQ people are entitled to these rights. He thought it would have been better if Congress had changed the law, but he didn't seem particularly worked up um, at all uh, about the substance of uh, the legal effect of the opinion. Um, and so that, I do think that's, that's a marked change in the way people talk about and understand LGBTQ people as human beings and, uh, and their rights. If you look back at some of Justice Scalia's dissents in, in some of the earlier gay rights cases, um, they, it, they really did sound like uh, a lot more like what Justice Alito wrote. And they were generally joined by, you know, th- uh, two or three other justices. So this ruling comes three days after the Trump administration decided to to reverse Obama-era protections against discrimination against transgender people and federally administered health care. Many consider his track record as it relates to LGBTQ rights abysmal. What are your thoughts? Both both of you, we'd love to hear from you. I'm happy to, I mean, I 
you know, this this is the last in a whole range of terrible things that we've seen from the Trump administration. Um, I think the first movement was to take away protections for transgender students uh, through change of um, of the, uh, the the guidance in the of the D Department of Education. We've seen, you know, anti um, uh, movements against veterans, um, against uh, members of the military um, and this latest, uh, you know, d effort to take away protections in the Affordable Care Act um, is just extremely painful. You know, uh, transgender people in particular face discrimination in healthcare access in repeatedly in many different ways. Um, but this decision just really in many, I mean, basically reverses all of that. Um, let's not, let me not go overboard, but it really is a great way to say most of those things are just not effective. That, um, uh, you know, the court has the final word about the meaning of these various statutes, including the Affordable Care Act. So I don't know that there's much actual adverse impact left of, of what happened on, on Friday. I would agree with that. Uh, the, the statute, the, the language that the court uh, that the court interpreted in Title VII is, is language that a similar language appears in many, many other statutes protecting against sex discrimination. And uh, the court, there's no reason at all to think that the court would come out any differently in any of those other, interpreting any of those other statutes. In fact, it would be nonsensical if it did. So while there's going to be on, you know, follow on litigation and it'll, it, the, the effects will take a while to be fully felt, uh, the, it, the, the result seems to me to be a foregone conclusion. Professor, uh, some of the fallout of this has been almost as interesting as the case itself, right? President Trump uh, has tweeted that the Supreme Court doesn't like me in the wake of the uh, additional decision we, we, we heard today with DACA. Maybe we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but really, you know, Trump, it, it, you know, Trump supporters have said if nothing else has gone right, uh, at least we have appointed, and Trump himself has said we've appointed two conservative justices that will be on the court for a long time. Um, we see that Gorsuch is already not a reliable vote, although, you know, you might be saying it's not really a constitutional decision. How do we read this decision? Um, and is this really a sign that Gorsuch might be another, you know, David Souter, for example? Well, I certainly don't think that <laughs> Judge Gorsuch, Justice Gorsuch is going to turn out to be uh, another David Souter. But I do think that what it shows is that when Justice Gorsuch said in his confirmation hearings that he was committed to a particular methodology, um, it, that at least in this case, uh, that's the methodology that he applied. And he said at oral argument in, in this case that he was concerned about what to do as a judge if uh, the text said one thing but and ruling that way might lead to massive social upheaval, which I think he was dramatically overstating, by the way. But um, he went with what he said was his jurisprudence. The reaction we're getting from a lot of people on the right uh, seems, certainly not uniformly, but it seems to me to kind of give lie to the idea that the claims that textualism is just about methodology and just about following the law and suggest that for some, at least, they expect it to lead to the results that they want substantively. Um, and if that's what they think is uh, that textualism is about, that's very different from the, the claims that are made to defend it as an approach. 
Professor Shapiro and Mr. Knight, thank you so much for your time here on WGN. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face-Off since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. Joining us now on Legal Faceoff on Zoom, she's Miranda Johnson, clinical professor of law and the director of Education Law and Policy Institute at Loyola School of Law. And she's here to talk about removing potentially the CPD from the CPS. Hi, Miranda. Welcome. Hi. Happy to be here. So, Miranda, an ordinance was introduced at yesterday's city council meeting by Alderman Sawyer, and it was supported by 13 aldermen. And... That ordinance would have required Chicago public schools to sever its $33 million contract with the Chicago Police Department. It wasn't passed, and at best, it's delayed until September. There was a debate among among the aldermen about which committee would be best situated to make the ultimate decision. Proponents of the ordinance claim that by having cops in Chicago public schools, that students are being criminalized for being students at CPS. Do you care to comment on that? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, there's been longstanding concern about having police officers in Chicago public schools. Currently, we pay $33 million, or CPS pays $33 million per year to station sworn police officers in about 70 schools. And what we see is that there's a narrative, really, that police officers are there to protect students and for student safety. But the result is that many students feel unsafe. Um, In particular, Black youth and students with disabilities have disproportionately higher rates of being arrested at school and feel like they're being funneled into what's called the school-to-prison pipeline. And as a result of um, school-based arrests, the school is actually not preparing them to make uh, the types of success that they would like to achieve in their lives, but actually saddling them with a juvenile or criminal justice record. 
Professor, what's the benefit to having um, police in schools? Um, because it seems like we're swinging the other way, right? In the last few years, we've seen obviously a rise in violence, uh, gun violence, and certainly school shootings. And, you know, as a parent of a couple of kids in school myself, um, I'm personally in favor of having more security at schools. And I really respect a lot of the work that the CPD has done in schools. So you have a dichotomy, of course, between wanting to have additional security, many of which are off-duty police officers or on-duty police officers, and you know this um, this new movement to defund the police or shift uh, resources elsewhere. How should we reconcile those two uh, desires? Yeah, as a society, we've really bought into this narrative that we need police officers in schools in order to promote school safety. And initially, I bought into that narrative, too. I sort of accepted that um, and then thought that we could address the concerns related to school police by more training, by better selection criteria, by better policies. Um, But then I started to look into what does the research say? We've had this dramatic rise in school police over the past 20 years. So we've had ample time to figure out if uh, that's an effective way to keep schools safe. And what I saw when I looked at the social science research, it really concerned me because there was very mixed research on whether uh, police actually keep students safe, which is the reason why we've invested so many millions of dollars in our city and in cities across the country in stationing police. Um, and in fact, the we know that having school police has negative impacts on certain populations of students. So I started to question whether that narrative was really accurate. And what I found is that we have much better research that there's different alternatives that do keep uh, students safe um, and not really great evidence that having police officers is what we need to keep young people safe in schools. In fact, schools have for a very long time been one of the safest places in our community for young people to be. And it's not because of the police. It's because of the relationships they form in school, the opportunities for learning, uh, the school social workers and counselors that are able to work with them. And that's where we should, I think, have concluded really be investing our funds and not in police officers. So, Miranda, can you walk us through in a little bit more detail what these alternatives are? Um, you know, it'd be helpful for us to just explore that and, and just figure out what is the alternative here, given what the role of police was intended to be in terms of protecting students. So what research shows is that schools with positive school climates are safer. Um, And what does it mean then to have a positive school climate, right? How do you foster that? That's the question that everyone wants to know. And when you look at the research, um, what's clear is that if there's structured supports for students, we have supports um, that are universal, that are available to all students, like helping them understand what appropriate behaviors are in school, helping um, them learn ways of productively managing conflicts, of addressing their anger when they feel escalated, of people who can teach them these types of skills just as they're teaching them academic skills. So we have those types of universal supports available to all students. And then we know that there's students coming into our school that have experienced trauma, that have mental health issues, that have significant needs. Um, And so then tailoring additional supports to address the needs of those students that are coming in. So how do you realize that in schools? You realize it through um, more personnel, Um, school counselors, 
school psychologists, school social workers, and more teachers who are really able to kind of work directly with students and reduce the, the student-teacher ratio so that they can more directly build relationships with our young people. That's Miranda Johnson, Loyola University School of Law. Miranda, thank you so much for joining us. We'll do it again soon. Thanks for having me. We all know the legal world is complex and high-pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. You can like Legal Face Off on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. And after you listen, if you like what you hear, please rate, review after you listen to the show, wherever you consume your podcast. Rich Lankoff, Tina Martini. If they don't like it, Sam, if they don't like it. If they don't like it, then you know what? Then we're not for you, I guess. Then yeah, keep it to yourself. <laughs> the other legal podcast that you're then You're keep right. it to yourself. We haven't done Inside Out in a while. And I was actually thinking about this the other night. I said, when are we going to have our next edition of Inside Out from Chicago Lawyer Magazine, Tina Martini and David Sussler from National Material LLP. And this episode or this version of Inside Out for June 2020 is called Now We're All In-House. I imagine, David and Tina, it's not the easiest time to be a lawyer <laughs> In COVID-19. I could be wrong, but I'll speak for myself. <laughs> Not easy well, to be anybody at this point. <laughs> um, you know, it's, uh, and I've been a lawyer for 33 years. It's all I know how to be, but, but the work's pretty hard right now. <laughs> well, to give our listeners some context and our viewers some context, right? The Inside Out column is composed of our co-host, Tina Martini, who is the outside counsel part of the inside out and david sussler of course is the inside part of inside out hence the inside out amazing name but also the other wrinkle is you are married and now you are living together not just now but you've always lived together but now you're working together living together writing this column together all hell's breaking loose over there in the sussler martini it's called Sustini. Sustini, how are you uh, going from working in very busy offices with outside people and friends and strangers and all sorts of people to only seeing each other 24-7? How's that working out? David, talk to us first. Um, well, it's interesting because the way we've, we've got it is actually Tina spends pretty much all day working in the kitchen. We have this built-in table that's about that's perfect stand-up desk height so tina works there i'm at the dining room table we don't really see each other very often during the day because we're busy working um and we see each other in the evenings like we're used to so it actually has worked out really well now tina your article mentioned something that you and i have talked about a lot which is we had these grand visions when this all began that you have <laughs> all sorts of free time right you get all your work done of course but because of no commutes because of no water cooler talk because of no one interrupting you you'd have an excess of time that you could then devote to you know learning to speak a foreign language playing the piano watching catching up on those shows you haven't watched in 20 years but your article says that the opposite is true you actually have 
far less time, not only to do personal things, but to do your job. And it is stressful because the demarcation point between your personal life and your work life is becoming blurrier now that we're working from home. That's absolutely true. Um, I'd say with respect to the lines blurring, um, I think being in the legal profession, the lines are always blurring to begin with. But when you wake up in the morning and you don't have things that break up your day, like going to your car, going to the train and commuting and meeting people in person for client meetings or socially, um, it becomes one sort of big time warp. And your sense of time, whether it's within a day, within a week or within a month, is completely different. And what happens is that that the weekdays blur into the weekends. And because of the nature of what we do, a lot of clients were in crisis mode. I think it's equalizing more now. But being in crisis mode, they look to their lawyers to provide counsel or at the very least to vent to. And that was going on day and night, just like it was going on for our clients. And so a lot of people were very challenged. And while there are efficiencies to cutting out things like commute time, there are certain inefficiencies um, with working from home and especially trying to lead teams, some of whom have members that may not be so used to working from home and trying to provide them with guidance and coaching on how best to do that if it's something they're not used to doing. If you haven't read the latest edition of Inside Out, check it out, Chicago Lawyer Magazine, chicagolawyermagazine.com. I'm curious about this answer here, and you answer this in the piece about separating your work life and your personal life. We're taping this on Zoom here, so we're hopping in and out of rooms. You guys saw my brother walk in, load his drink up with ice. Sometimes my mom walks around. I mean, there's just a, a blend of different things in this time. How do we separate the work and the personal side of life? So, I mean, for me, I started after my first couple of days at home when I realized there was just no separation. I, I, I didn't shave. I didn't I just put on jeans and a regular shirt. And I realized I need to keep, I need to keep my regular routine. I've always kept the same time. I get up at the same time each day. But Monday through Friday, I shave. I put on my work clothes, which are just business casual, such as dress shirt and dress slacks. But I do that. And then... You know, I work longer. Instead of getting in the car to commute, I sit down at the computer and start working right away. So I've got two to three hours a day of extra work time, which I've adapted to. But then I I try to shut off by six o'clock if I can. The first month or so, that was almost impossible. The last six weeks or so, it's been easier to shut down by six o'clock. And then I change my clothes and start making dinner or go for a walk. And that's that's kind of how I do it. Although, you know, like Tina said, there's, there's, there's always a blur. We're always on. Um, I find myself, it's easier to read a document later at night after dinner because my computer is right there, but I try not to, if I don't have a deadline. And Sam, we try to see like the fun in this too. I mean, everybody's in the same boat. Everybody's cohabitating. There are babies sitting on people's laps. There's you know, pets running across keyboards. So I mean, David makes. <laughs> I mean, David makes these like almost these zoom bomb appearances in the corner of my camera, and I've had people ask yeah. me in the middle of meetings. They say. Who's that guy who's like waving his hand in the background? It's that. I mean, well, and I think everybody has those stories, like like this, like one of our cats. I've learned how to do mute virtual backgrounds, so that's my one of my. That's, cats. that's the scale, right? I assume. 
Yeah, that is to yeah. scale. Our cat yeah. Steve is is the size of Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we'll we'll wrap up as we traditionally do on legal face off uh, when our inside out columnists come to us and talk a little bit about to Tina's point some fun stuff. Uh, we often share our love of music with you both, and especially our love of the almighty boss, a man whose name needs no introduction anywhere in the civilized world, Bruce Springsteen. Uh, David, you've seen Springsteen a few times, as has Tina. I've seen him many times. My, my, my big question to both of you is, will we ever see Bruce Springsteen on the stage again? He is not yeah. a young man anymore. And who knows when concerts will be back? Uh, at, I'd say I'd say a year after the vaccine is out, and uh, well, well, the population is well inoculated. We'll see concerts again. So in other well, words, well, and I was going to say, I mean, I think that David, that David's right. I think it's going to be a while before we have concerts with audiences. But I think Springsteen. I mean, he's done it before. He'll do it again. He'll do a concert without an audience or a very, very small audience, and he will, um, you know, video it and share it for others so that they feel like they're getting the experience in the meantime. All right, if you had to pick and, one, I'm going to put you on the spot, Sussler and Martini. If you had to pick one Springsteen song that embodies the pandemic era, what would that be? Or even a Springsteen <laughs> lyric? Easy. I don't know. What do you got? Go ahead. Well, Dancing in the Dark. I mean, uh, <laughs> That's a good one. Um, God, you know, I haven't really, th- I, I have to think about that. I haven't thought yeah, about I'm it. I'm going to give you two, two lyrics that spring to mind. All right, you ready? One of them yeah. is, uh, and let's see if you can name the song. And this is right on point. I've been working real hard trying to get my hands clean. Drive that dusty road from Monroe to Angeline. So pretty on point, talking about cleaning your hands. And then another one is a little bit yeah. of a deeper dive, but... Uh, they're waiting for you at Bellevue with that oxygen mask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, that would be what song, Sussler? Oh, my God, uh, I'm drawing a blank. God, I'm singing the song in my head. For you, of course. <laughs> for you. All right, well. Greetings uh, from Asbury Park. That's right. I, I, just, I just keep thinking of, you know, what have I been listening to? You know, Springsteen, he's been doing his, his radio show on uh, – Sirius XM playing music for the uh, quarantine, uh, which which have been very interesting. Um, and of course, I've still been listening to Western Stars quite a bit since that came out. Um, that's a song of hope. That's an album of hope. A little bit of hope in there. It's a good one. Tina, yeah. wrap us up with your favorite Springsteen pandemic thought. Well, for some reason... The song that keeps coming to mind for this is City of Ruins. Mm. Good, Good one. call. I mean, just when you think about the context of that album, too, it was post 9-11, and there are a lot of comparisons being made, at least from a, you know impact on society and an economic standpoint to that event. Well, I, I just thought of a song, Rich, the song that I was thinking about that I was listening to a couple weeks ago is Long Way Home from mm. uh, Magic. Yeah, that I was listening to that song and it really uh, struck me in a way it hadn't before for many reasons, including the pandemic. It's a great one. My City Ruins is great. Long Walk Home is great. Sam, we're going to sign off with telling Springsteen, because I know Springsteen is a devoted listener and viewer. <laughs> I'm going to tell the boss, 
what someone told him right after 9-11, like a two days after 9-11, that made him go out and tour the country. Uh, it was these words. We need you now. We need you now, boss. So leave, yep. your, leave your house in uh, Colts Neck and get out on the road. We need you, man. Yep. All right. Well said. This has been another edition of Inside Out. If you can't uh, check it out, do it at chicagolarmagazine.com. Chicago Lar Magazine. The edition is called Now We're All In-House. David and Tina, thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. We wrap it up here on Legal Faceoff with a legal grab bag. Thanks to Ben. Thanks to Emily. Thanks to Gabrielle. For Sam and Rich and Tina, we appreciate you listening to another episode of Legal Faceoff here on WGN. And joining us here in the Legal Grab Bag, Michelle Kirkland. She's a unit manager at North American Risk Services. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Also, Priya Shah, who's the founder and executive director of The Simple Good, and you can check out her website at impriyashah.com. Priya, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Let's go. We're happy to have you guys. Um, so the Rayshard Brooks case has been in the news, everyone. That's obviously the latest um, video that we all saw. And what's, uh, what's newsworthy over the last 24 hours is that the two officers who were involved in the shooting of Mr. Brooks at the Wendy's uh, in Atlanta have been charged. Um, one of them was charged with murder. And in uh, Georgia, murder is a capital offense that carries with it uh, the, poten the potential for a death sentence or life in prison. The other officer, depending on you know, who you believe, is either uh, might, might now be a witness for the prosecution. The prosecutor yesterday said that the other officer was going to testify against Rolf, the uh, main officer, and his attorney said, but that won't be the case. But, you know, causing a lot of discussion, uh, lots of legal issues that we concentrate on on our show. Um, the main one, of course, being whether it was proper to charge the officer with murder. Right. I think obviously in light of the uh, Floyd situation that um, has happened a couple of weeks ago, uh, we're all now more familiar and, of course, more. Um, concerned about alleged police misconduct. And I think looking at the video in this case, and it's obviously a long video, there's a lot of context to it. I think certainly there was a crime that was committed that night by the officer. Uh, in Georgia, however, there is not second or third degree murder. There's only first degree. So let's talk about whether it is 
appropriate or maybe more on point, whether you think a jury will find that what the officer did was murder or, as he will allege, was self-defense, right? The video shows Mr. Brooks running away. Uh, he was told to stop. He turns and fires the police officer's taser at the officer, and then he turns back, and that's when the officer shoots him three times in the back. So, again, I think when you shoot someone in the back when they're fleeing, that is a crime. Whether it rises to the degree of murder is very, very tough in this case. I think in the Floyd case, there's no human being that can look at that and think that wasn't murder of some degree. But in this case, as we've talked about on this show, the state's going to need to prove some element of intent. And did the officer form the requisite intent in those few seconds between um, being faced with his taser and turning around? I don't expect to solve that issue today, but it's one of the discussion points. Maybe, Tina, what are your thoughts on that or any other element of this, of this case? I mean, my sense from the video and from what I know about this case is, you know, I guess in some ways it is unfortunate that they don't recognize second and third degree murder because maybe those would be more appropriate. But I don't think not charging him with murder is the right answer here either. My concern is that this guy was fleeing when he ended up getting shot and he wasn't shot once. He wasn't shot twice. He was shot multiple times. And yes, this he ended up pointing the taser at the cop, but it was in the midst of turning around and, and fleeing that this happened. And I think that is critically important to the analysis here. And this is not the first time that this police force in Georgia has had issues. And unfortunately, it's just more of the same that we've been seeing and have been discussing and protesting for, for, for a long time now. Michelle, uh, one of the interesting components of these kind of cases that we're seeing lately is how swiftly uh, authorities are moving in dealing with and investigating and charging in these cases, right? It used to be where if you had a police officer involved shooting, it would take months of investigation. We wouldn't see video until, you know, many months or sometimes years later. In a famous case here in Chicago, the Laquan McDonald case, uh, many people lost their job because the video was not... Uh, shown to the public for many months. In this case, um, you know, Rayshard uh, um, Brooks was shot last Friday. The next day, the police chief resigned. Uh, the police officers were immediately fired. And within five days, the officers were charged with murder. What are your thoughts on that? Um, do you think that's a good development that these investigations and actions are moving quicker than ever? I feel this is probably a pretty sensitive topic for everybody, but I am glad to see that they are moving quickly in trying to gather the information and do their investigations. Priya, what are your thoughts on that? I think, you know, shining the light on any alleged crime is always of value. On the other hand, you know, any prosecutor will tell you that it takes time to investigate. And especially the reason you don't see that many officers charged with crimes in this case, some might say because, you know, there's other reasons, but one of the reasons inevitably is because it takes time to investigate. These shootings are a little bit more involved and it does take some time to properly, you know, vet witnesses. In this case, you've got a video. I think that's one of the reasons why you didn't need months and months of investigation. 
Yeah, I mean, fortunately and unfortunately, a lot of things are captured on video right now. And that's kind of why we're here in the first place. You know, these things have been going on for a very long time. And, you know, unfortunately, most of the population think these struggles haven't existed. And now they have been captured on video. And so we can have discussions like this about why things like this are happening and have some more self-analyzation. I think also like on the um, police department level, the conversation of their own mental health when they are within these situations and the decisions that they're making, um, because at the end of the day, we're all human, right? And so we are dealing with our own adrenaline, but what type of a training is being provided when you are in a situation where you feel threatened and are you taking the best decision-making during that time? Um, Like Tina said, you know, this person was running away. So was three shots really necessary, you know, when we know and examine and understand the mental well-being of somebody that is intoxicated. Um, So, you know, outside of also, you know, talking about the level of charges that this officer is going to get, which I think is a great, response um, and a beginning action to also analyze like how a lot of these systems are even working um, and how our decision making are you know impacted by it. Topic two involves somebody that we discussed quite a bit on Legal Face Up and quite a bit in the legal grab bag. That is of course the president, Donald Trump, who is at war, war in quotation marks with his former advisor, National Security Advisor, John Bolton. Bolton wants to bring out a book and Trump says, well, if you bring out a book, you'll break the law. Yeah, Trump is fighting a couple of books. He also, his niece uh, is also writing a book about um, her, you know, time with her uncle. Uh, and also she is the alleged leaker of some of his uh, tax documents. But, but like you said, John, uh, or Sam, John Bolton is the former NSA director for Trump. He wrote a book called The Room Where It Happened. And in that book, he is disclosing a lot of information that makes Trump look like a buffoon. Um, Not that I think you need a book for that, right? But I think Trump's doing a pretty good job showing that. But um, Trump, through the DOJ, has filed a lawsuit just on Tuesday insisting that this book should not be published because it divulges damaging national security information. Uh, By all accounts, that argument is nonsense. It's not going to fly. You know, uh, it's not uncommon for former officials of the government to write books once they leave the government. Uh, this is just an attempt, in my opinion, uh, for Trump doing what Trump does, which is, you know, insulting former uh, employees and, you know, trying to uh, stifle the truth from coming out. The book is incredulous. It's fake. It's not true. It's unapologetic. We don't like the book, right? That's the way, that's the way he would say it, right? That's a good Trump impersonation. Hang on. Let me take a drink of water. <laughs> Remind, it reminds me of uh, Seinfeld. I feel like I'm dating myself making the Seinfeld reference, but the Jackie Childs episodes where Jackie Childs goes through like 10 adjectives to describe what a, a particular antic is. Um, you know, I think this is just more of the same. It's all about obfuscation. And, you know, it's, it's a delay tactic until he can figure out and the administration can figure out a better way to try to shoot this down. But I think that Bolton and the publisher are probably both way too sophisticated to publish something that is going to divulge matters of national security. So I agree. And and Priya, the fact is that in prior cases, there's a long litany of Supreme Court decisions 
uh, on this issue. And in no case, in cases that were far closer calls than this, has the court ruled that the First Amendment or the court's interpretation of it um, suggests that the government has any right to bar this kind of information coming out. So what do you think? Free speech or divulsion of government secrets? <laughs> I mean, it's definitely um, a question of free speech. But, you know, if Trump had found out this guy was going to write a book that said all wonderful things about him with the same <laughs> action. Um, Have at it, right? Yeah. Great book. Love the book. <laughs> Very powerful book. Yeah. Power. All truths in it. hundred <laughs> percent. Michelle, what are your thoughts on the whole situation? Uh, this is just the wrong time to be airing all of this dirty laundry, I tell you. <laughs> oh, Michelle maybe uh, is in favor of keeping the book under wraps, it sounds like. Well, keep it inside. Keep it in-house. I guess we'll wait and see. So one of the biggest cities as far as hotbeds for all that has been going on in the U.S. of May, Minneapolis and Minnesota, where we had several things go on over the past couple of weeks. And this from the ABA Journal, a journalist blinded in the Minneapolis protesting is now suing law enforcement, citing a violation of the First Amendment. Yes. So a journalist, Linda Torado, was recently covering protests in Minneapolis in the wake of Floyd's murder. And what happened was she was towards the front of the line by law enforcement, was covering it along with other uh, journalists. And um, she ended up getting sprayed in the face with foam bullets by law enforcement. She was rushed to the hospital after she had a lot of, it was a pretty gory thing. She was seriously injured. She goes to the hospital and she finds out that she ended up losing sight in one of her eyes. And she's filed this lawsuit um, on the basis that she was rightfully there. They knew that they, meaning law enforcement, knew that the media was going to be there. She had the pass she needed. Um, she was given the ability to um, be out past curfew. There wasn't anything that they were doing that was um, disturbing the peace or anything like that. And she claims, you know, freedom of press. She had a right to be there and that law enforcement used a level of force that was completely unnecessary given the circumstances. We all know from our experience here in Chicago, for example, that some of these protests got pretty violent, but it appears based on the accounts that this was a level of force that was used that really wasn't precipitated by the circumstances. Yeah, I mean, listen, um, it's, I'll just say it's a hard time to be a cop. You know, I, I, I'm the first and I've been on you know, our show and, and lots of other media talking about how disgusting a lot of the police activity has been. I mean, you know, the Floyd case is just, just some of the worst things you've ever seen. On the other hand, it is difficult being it is difficult being a cop, and you know when you have people taking um, protesting to a different degree and looting and rioting, um, the cops have a tough job, and there will be mistakes made. And certainly, you want to apply uh, a reasonable amount of force, but you're going to see a ton of lawsuits because people feel more empowered than ever to question police behavior. And it's going to have a tough effect on the police. I don't want to sound like Trump, but, you know, police have to do their job and they have to have some leeway in doing that. Um, so, you know, you're going to see a lot of lawsuits like this um, uh, for a while. 
But I think juries are going to have to look at, you know, all of the facts and decide what's reasonable. Priya, what are your, I bet you've got some thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, it is really hard. You know, there are, um, everybody's being put in a really tough position, both sides. And when we do evaluate these situations, we do really have to talk about both sides. I think we know that there are flaws in the system, um, but we also know that a lot of people are being challenged right now, you know, and we have to look at it from both lenses in order for us to <clears throat> make sustainable improvements that serve both sides. Um, so, you know, I think there are going to be a lot of these situations that come up as well and like a lot of lawsuits, but in a way I kind of think it's a good thing because now we're forced to talk about these situations instead of just putting them under the bush and hopefully create an mutual understanding rather than just, you know, heavily weighed on one side. Right. Right. And, and actually Tina, it's, it's a great, you know, I'd rather see someone challenge police and law enforcement in the courts than on the street. Right. I'd rather see someone take uh, a police officer or an agency to court than try to steal their gun or fight them on the street. So in some ways this is a positive development. Yeah, it's very delicate needle to thread here. I mean, where would we be? Let's be real. Where would we be without police? I mean, it, it would be complete mayhem. So um, so as Priya said, it's a balancing, a delicate balancing act. And it's at least where we are, com we are conversing about this and having meaningful dialogues about this in a way that we really just haven't up until now. Let's move from Minneapolis to the nation's capital. I'll just read the first part of this story. The District of Columbia Court of Appeals has suspended a former law judge who claimed in a lawsuit that a dry cleaners owed him more than $67 million for losing his pants. Where do we go from here? Those are some pants. Yeah, what type of pants? <laughs> um... Yeah, not much more to say about the case, really. I mean, it's a whack job of a, of a, of a case. Uh, so he, what, the cleaners lost his pants, the allegation goes, and he then sued, uh, demanding 15000 for emotional distress. With satisfaction guaranteed. Yeah, well, there was a satisfaction guarantee, exactly. 15000 in punitive damages. Um, and this is back in 2005, by the way. And to Michelle's point, the cleaner said satisfaction guarantee, safety service, and all work done on premises. Well, uh, it went on from there and eventually, yes, yeah, somehow reached $67 million demand. Um, uh, the owners of the dry cleaners had made three offers of judgment that topped out at $12,000. So he took it further, wasted a lot of time, and uh, again, got suspended because of it. So... I'm glad he did so, um, and, and maybe he'll think twice about pursuing nonsensical, frivolous lawsuits in the future. Um, Tina, you have some of the most expensive pants I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> have you ever made a claim for uh, lost pants, and if so, uh, did emotional distress accompany that claim? I don't wear pants. I wear skirts and dresses, thank you very much. But. Um, <laughs> Not yeah, so. but no, I mean, I've had, so I've actually, I mean, we've all had it happen, right? Dry cleaners mess up, they lose stuff, they ruin stuff. Um, the most I've ever sought to get from a dry cleaner, brutally honest, was 50 bucks. And that was the cost of the sweater that they messed up. Um, but, you know, the, in, in, in the era we're living in where the courts are already too full 
We are living in a COVID environment. Um, this guy should have known better. He should be suspended. I mean, it, it's just, it, it's, it's outrageous. By the way, the story ties in nicely to Inside Out because Sussler mentioned that his dry cleaner is happy now that he's back to his work wardrobe. So it's the all dry cleaner edition of Legal Face Off, Sam. Uh, Michelle, you deal with people who make wild <laughs> accusations and are looking for uh, compensation that is grossly in excess of any possible damage that they've suffered. You have to love this kind of story. Have you ever had a $67 million claim in your professional career? Absolutely not, nor have Everybody, I had a $90,000 rental car request either. Any missing pants uh, claims? Yeah, probably, yeah. yes. A couple? All right, Priya, is this, what, is this what is wrong with the legal system? And it's, it's by an attorney, which is all the more egregious. I mean, it's definitely an indicator of privilege, right? That you are taking it to this level instead of really handling it in a way as a common person would. Like, this is just... Are ridiculous. And a part of it is about the inequity of society, right? That you could be at this level in this platform or have access to make such an outrageous claim because you're so, you know, privileged and you can have access to that space. And he's making the news for it, which, you know, so a lot of folks would not even be close to, to being able to do. So, yeah, great point. Social media is a very interesting place. It's fun in a lot of ways, but it's also dangerous for others because everything you put out on social media goes into that online vault that gets locked away forever. And this affected a law student and the admission process at SMU down in Dallas where Tina, an admission was revoked over racially offensive behavior on social media. Yeah, you've really done a good job of summarizing the story i mean this is a and also also by the way good job explaining the internet to us <laughs> <laughs> tough crowd tough explaining crowd. the world wide web how that thing works all right w- I'll, w- w- I'll be over here see you bye oh, so this is a recurring theme on the show um we see so often that social media as sam said while it's an integral part of who we are as a society sharing information and all these other things it can also be abused. Um, some would say that some folks in high places in our country abuse it. I'll leave that discussion for another day. But in this instance, Southern Methodist University revoked the admission of a law student because they were posting racially offensive material and was in this student was exhibiting racially um, offensive behavior um, on social media. And as a result of that, um, the dean of the law school said they did not divulge who the student was. They did not divulge what the platform was that this happened. But they said that the student was not acting in accordance with the values of the the school. And as a result, they revoked admission. Um, What was really interesting, I mean, first of all, I think it's the right decision, particularly now in the environment that we're in and always, but I think now there's even more attention being placed on this type of misbehavior. Um, What was really interesting was that there was an anecdote by one of the adjunct professors um, at Southern Methodist University that said that it is not uncommon for law students to end up posting just completely inappropriate content on social media. And I, you know, throw this out to the group, you know, in a day and age where once you put something out there, it's always out there. Even if you delete it, it's still out there. There's still 
fingerprints on the World Wide Web, as Rich likes to call it. Um, and it just makes me question, you know, why is it that folks would do this knowing that sooner or later someone can find it, even if you've deleted it? Yeah. And, you know, people might say this is um, hindering free speech, First Amendment nonsense, right? The free speech doesn't protect you from uh, your behavior, your actions, your speech, having a repercussion, having some repercussion. You can say what you want, but the school doesn't have a duty to accept you. You know, I was on uh, G's show last night on WGN, shout out, name drop, uh, Sam. And we were talking about whether your employer has the right to, to fire you for um, your exercise of free speech. If you're out uh, protesting Black Lives Matter or supporting Black Lives Matter, or any movement that's political or social, you have the right to do it, but you don't have a guaranteed right to be employed by someone who disagrees with that, unless you work for the government, unless there's some state agents, uh, state law that you know applies. But generally, your employer can fire you for that because you don't have a right to have a job. Uh, the First Amendment simply says that Congress cannot enact a law that abridges your free speech. Similarly, in this case, the school doesn't have a duty to put up with nonsense like this. Let this guy spread out, spread out as much as he wants, but he doesn't have the right to go to you know school and have a school accept an idiot. So, Priya, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, if he doesn't like people, certain type of people, he should just go to online class because in the world, we're always going to interact with folks. And if he has the decision to learn with others through a college institution, he should be more aware of the fact that, you know, these types of, words are not appropriate for, you know, the decisions that he wants to make in the future. So if he's not okay with everybody, then he shouldn't even be attending. So I agree with the decisions that school made. I'm glad that they did do that. I think a lot of institutions um, need to be thinking about the same thing. Two topics left to go here on the legal grab bag on legal face off. This involves former baseball player, Lenny Dykstra, who has been in the news for many reasons over the years. And this time his reputation was so tarnished. He claims he's being defamed or he wasn't actually being defamed by a book. It's been back and forth defamation, not defamation. I'm still confused. That's why I turn to you guys because you're much smarter than me. What's going on with Lenny Dykstra? And uh, nails Dykstra, one of the great nicknames in baseball history, uh, member of the legendary '85 Mets team, uh, Sam, that you, uh, you you are familiar with. But yeah, great decision. One of my favorite decisions. The judge said basically, Dykstra, you can't be defamed because your character is so crappy that you're undefamable. Basically, um, uh, it's called the liable proof plaintiff doctrine. And this case by Dykstra was dismissed because Judge Kalish in Manhattan said that when your reputation is so poor that you can't suffer, you can't suffer further damage by a false statement. So get out of here, Dykstra. It's really a fascinating decision. If you read the, uh, uh, what Kalish wrote, he said that Dykstra had a reputation largely due to his autobiography being willing to do anything to benefit himself and his team, including using steroids and blackmailing umpires. So basically, the judge is saying, Dykstra, you wrote a book saying everything you did. You've been tried for embezzlement and tax fraud and all sorts of stuff. So there's no way in the world you can claim that this other book, uh, alleging relatively minor things compared to what you've admitted to, uh, your case has no merit. Get the hell out of here. Good decision, I think. Although... I gotta say, I love, I love Dykstra. Dykstra is a great player. Don't get me wrong. 
Um, and I, you know, I'm a big baseball fan, but I completely agree with the decision. And I think it was really foolish of him to even bring the case in the first place. I mean, to me, it's, it's, it's almost as bad as the $65 million claim on the pants. Um, maybe not quite as bad, but it's the same bucket of, you know, craziness in my opinion. Um, Michelle, do you think that there are certain plaintiffs that are undefamable because defamable, it's not even a word that I'm making up. So that's why it's hard to say. Uh, what do you think of this decision? I think he's giving himself his own negative publicity and he just needs to back down. Okay. Seven. I think I said the 85 Mets. Of course, it's the 86 Mets that, uh, one of the legendary teams and, and, it's funny, if you look at that team, there are many other members of that roster that, uh, let's say, had some interesting brushes with the law. Hernandez, Doc Gooden. Yeah, wasn't Mookie on it? Yeah, Mookie. Although Mookie was one of the relatively, you know, not controversial members of that team. But, yeah, Mookie, Mookie scored, uh, you know, hit, hit the base hit that went through uh, Buckner's legs that, that scored Ray Knight. But, yeah, that team was – just a, a rogues gallery. And by the way, Lenny Dykstra, Sam, perhaps coming to a renegade show near you in the near future. Stay tuned. I like uh, that. He's, he's a perfect renegade. Final, uh, final chapter of this episode's legal grab bag. We go all the way across the pond to Vienna, Austria, where massive flatulence is a problem. A man in Vienna was fined 500 euros for deliberately breaking wind. I don't even know where to start here. So for this story, we go to um, one of the hotbeds of legal face-off fans, which is Austria, and uh, where we have a story of a young man. Big following in Salzburg. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we follow the story of a young man who gets stopped by the officers who wanted to check his identity. And um, in the process of being asked about his identity, he decided to emit a massive flatulence, also known as a toot. <laughs> and it was so disrespectful and so obnoxious that he got fined 500 euros. I have to say this is the first time I have ever heard anywhere in the world, whether it's Austria or Chicago, of someone ending up getting fined 500 euros. But you know what? He will have the opportunity to challenge this fine in the legal system. Mm -hmm. Thank God. Thank God for the legal system. Sam, uh, Tina, this, this, this story smells so much. I gotta <laughs> go ahead. Uh, with the shameless oh, advertising with your face mask. Way to go. Everyone wants one, Sam. They're highly in demand. How much? Play your cards right, buddy. I just go like this. I pull my shirt up, you know? Priya, do you think it's a proper use of the legal system to fine someone for engaging in a perfectly natural... <laughs> I mean, as Shrek said, better, better out than in, right? Um, yeah, no, I don't probably think that's the best use of our times, but um, definitely gives everybody a comedic laugh and puts things into perspective. So I'm pulling. All right. Guess what presidential candidate I'm imitating? <laughs> hey, Joe Biden. You guys see Biden the other day with a mask hanging off his ear. Get out, really? Michelle, uh, what's your what's your position on the tooting uh, the uh, the tooting uh, Austrian? 
I have just never heard of a uh, voluntary offensive toot. Okay. <laughs> Sam, take us, take us home. Any, is this story just full of hot, hot air? Or hot what? air, yeah. <laughs> a lot, there's a lot to decompress here, if you know what I'm saying. So um, we appreciate Priya and Michelle joining the show here on Legal Grab Bang and Legal Face Off. Thank you both for joining us. For Rich and Tina, my name is Sam. We will talk to you right around the 4th of July here on WGN. Thanks for listening. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.